Welcome to the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast. This series is Child Protection Caseworker Support. I am Jessica Price, your host. On each episode, we will explore topics that are relevant to child welfare professionals. We will hear directly from people who work every day to make a difference in the lives of children and families. It is our goal that this podcast is accessible, informative, and supportive. So if you know someone who works in child welfare, be sure to share this podcast with them. Today on the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast, we are discussing child welfare supervision. This podcast will be useful to those who are in supervisory roles and wonder how to better support their staff, as well as frontline professionals who want to work more effectively with their supervisor. We will talk about quality supervision over quantity, and we'll also learn how to engage in courageous conversations. The decisions that are made in child welfare are often very challenging, so this makes quality supervision critical for our frontline staff. Our guest today is Dr. Cynthia Leitz. Dr. Leitz is a professor at Arizona State University and vice dean in the College of Public Service and Community Solutions. She is also a licensed clinical social worker. Let's get started. So thank you for being with us, Dr. Leeds. Thanks so much for having me. It's really a privilege to spend some time with you today. Um, how's the weather here compared to where you just came from? You know, temperature-wise, <laughs> about the same, but okay. quite a bit more humid. How come okay. everything's wet on the on it, the glasses and everything around here? It is. It is. Welcome to Florida. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to get started. I usually start with asking our guests what brought them into child welfare in general. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to this profession? Yeah, it's a great question. I started out as pretty young when I started my undergraduate degree, and I was interested in helping people. Um, And so I uh, ended up majoring in psychology, which I loved and has informed a lot of my work. But um, my psychology advisor heard something in me early on that suggested that social work uh, might be a nice pairing with my psychology undergrad. And so I ended up moving directly on for my master's degree at just 21 years old and frankly was excited about helping people, but really didn't know honestly much about what that even meant. Um, Happened to be, as happens with some folks, that my first internship in my master's of social work program at Jane Addams College of Social Work in Chicago was doing ongoing uh, child welfare work serving Cook County, Chicago, children, youth, and families in that area. And so that was a really difficult, overwhelming, amazing, inspiring time of my life. And I'm really grateful that my career started there. The next question is also pretty staple. How important is supervision? And as a, as a previous you know, frontline worker, how important was it for you? Incredibly important. In fact, um, that's really where my story started, being so young and very enthusiastic, um, but yet being somebody who had not only lacked professional experience, but also personal experience, um, starting the work of intervening with children, youth, and families um, at such a young age with very little um, education about how to do that work could have been a high-risk situation. Uh, The reason I feel like I did um, good work that first year and was able to do so with competence really was because I had a great child welfare supervisor, and she understood what it meant to both monitor and mentor my practice. So monitor, she knew it was her responsibility to make sure um, that I engaged in quality practice. 
And the mentoring, she figured out how to grow me up in the field, teach me the things that I needed to know, such that by the end of that first internship, I was supervising, uh, I'm sorry, not uh, engaging in supervised home visits, um, licensing uh, relative foster families, testifying in court. Um, in a relatively short period of time, I was pretty prepared to deal with um, some of the difficult work in child welfare that would not have happened without a committed, knowledgeable, caring child welfare supervisor. Wonderful. So a couple of weeks ago, we did a podcast on the workforce. So to me, this is almost a continuation. So we talked to Dr. Wilkie, who I think you're familiar with. And we also had a frontline worker come in and we had the research perspective and then the practice perspective. And, and he talks a lot about what you just said. Like He is very much supported and feels as if, I think his second year he's been in the field, um, he would not have made it two years without the supervisor that he has. Which takes me to my first question about quality supervision versus quantity. Because what I'm hearing from you is not that you were being, you were uh, having your hands held at all times and you know you were with them at all times, but it sounds like there was some quality there. Can you talk about that breakdown and the difference? Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, for child welfare supervision to be sustainable, we've got to figure out how to be as intentional as possible with the time that we have with our direct reports. It's not sustainable for child welfare supervisors to handhold their folks and to be with them every minute of every day. Um, that'd be great if that could happen, but they might as well actually do that work on their own at that point. Um, the research that I've conducted, in fact, suggests that um, number of hours spent in supervision doesn't predict a higher level of satisfaction with supervision. It's actually the quality of that supervision and what happens during that time. And so one of the things that's important is being more intentional about how we spend our time as supervisors. Often what happens is somebody's a really great investigator or ongoing worker and they get promoted to be a supervisor. And unfortunately, uh, they often receive very little training or very little development around that. And so they find themselves in the situation where they've got to navigate what does it mean. And what happens is a lot of supervision ends up organic then, just sort of what they feel like they should do. And there's a lot of good stuff that happens within there. Sometimes they've had a good supervisor who's modeled good practice, and so that's great. Um, but without labeling um, the components of child welfare supervision, which allows people to use the time as intentionally as possible so that um, the time that they do have with their direct reports is meaty and focused and meaningful, that's really what it means to engage in high quality supervision. And based on your research or your own experience, how often should those meetings happen? Should someone have a standing meeting every week, every day, or does it just depend? I don't know if I could give a specific number that's the right amount because so much of it does depend on the level of experience of that direct report. Are they somebody who's new, somebody who's really experienced? Can depend also on the role of that supervisor, the role that that direct report is serving. But what I can say is that both crisis and scheduled in-depth supervision are needed. So crisis supervision means that child welfare is by nature a crisis-oriented field. And so there's nothing wrong with, in fact, not only nothing wrong with, it's very good supervision. Uh, to be available to your folks when they need to make urgent decision making. If they call from court or they're having a, a difficult situation, uh, a child welfare supervisor's availability in a crisis is fundamentally important uh, to that direct report's ability to make good decisions. What happens, though, is sometimes because the system is so crisis-oriented, supervision stops there. 
and folks are just engaged in crisis supervision, which sometimes people will call hallway supervision or someone's following you up to your car at night trying to get a quick answer to an important question, um, that needs to be paired with some scheduled in-depth supervision. The times where your folks bring to you what is important but non-urgent. So crisis supervision is for the urgent and important. Um, but there's also this whole host of things that come up in child welfare that may not be urgent today, but are fundamentally important. And if you don't have some scheduled in-depth supervision to place those questions, that content, it never emerges. Um, and then there's a lot that ends up being left uncovered and unsaid. So while I can't give the specific amount, I trust supervisors to assess the needs of their direct reports and the specific situation they're supervising. What I would recommend, though, is that they think strongly about pairing um, their crisis supervision with some scheduled in-depth supervision. Wow, this is really fascinating because I think that they are um, really, really great at the crisis yep, supervision. Yep, yep. I mean, they are ready and willing and they um, they're able to be on the phone. Again, like you said, you could be at a, a family home and you call your supervisor and they're on the edge of their seats almost saying, this is my job. But there's more to that part of the job. So I really appreciate that. And I always want to tie back to people that are listening. If you are a frontline worker, I want to talk a little bit about how should, what, what's your recommendation, Dr. Leitz, on how do they engage their supervisors if they don't feel there's a balance in that? How do you think they should approach their supervisor? Um, should it be in an email format? Should it be in a communication as far as verbal? How do they get more supervision? Yeah. You know, I encourage supervisors to spend some time early on in the supervisor supervisory relationship orienting uh, their direct reports to what they expect. And that's a that's that goes two ways. And so direct reports also um, should have the opportunity to speak with their supervisors about their professional development goals, what they see as their strengths. Where are the gaps in their knowledge and ways that they'd like to be developed, whether that's through the relationship with the supervisor or even some additional professional development? I would strongly encourage them to um, open up that dialogue with their supervisor, express their goals and their needs, and figure out how to negotiate that such that they're able to get those needs met. And would that be synonymous with courageous conversations? I know that's a part of your model. Yeah, so the Courageous Conversations really comes from um, talking about child welfare supervisors, their role as leaders, such that there's a hierarchical difference between themselves and their direct reports. And it's the ways that supervisors engage their positional authority, the times at which they note practices of concern, and the ways that they have those conversations with their direct reports. And so they should be modeling to their direct reports how to have transparent open conversation. People long for feedback. Uh, some research suggests that people would rather have negative feedback than no feedback at all because people are just sort of left wondering, how am I doing? Um, I hope that's not what they get from uh, the strengths-based supervision training I do. I hope what they learn is to evaluate their folks, to note good practice, to make sure they encourage the very good things that they see, and then yes, be willing to have difficult conversations when practice is not quite what it needs to be. From the direct report side, I'm hoping that that models to direct reports to be able to also have transparent conversation with their supervisors. And if they're um, you know, not getting what they need to be able to be successful within their practice, they should uh, have a relationship with their supervisor where they can express that as well. And what you just said brought something to mind. I used to work in New York and there was, as, as is everywhere, there was a crisis and there was a child fatality 
and multiple frontline caseworkers were fired and many of their supervisors were fired. And when some of the supervisors released statements or were asked, you know, why did you not see what the frontline worker was doing? Why didn't you, like you just said, talk about these gaps in practice? It was almost, um, I don't want to say it was over empathy, but they felt for their frontline workers. They said they had so much going on. I saw there might have been gaps, but I just couldn't make myself sit down with them and, and give them one more thing they've done yep, wrong. Yep. And I don't know if you can kind of agree with that or kind of heard stories about that in, in your training and your facilitation. Just the idea that when you are a supervisor and you know you see gaps in practice, it's hard to sometimes put one more thing on a plate yep. of a frontline worker. I completely get it. And that feeling is understandable, um, particularly because the supervisors themselves are often overloaded and stretched. And so when they see their direct reports functioning in a similar fashion, I actually love that there's empathy and the capacity to understand and feel what it's like to have that level of pressure. Um, besides the busyness, let's call it what it is, uh, protecting the safety of children in our community um, I can't actually think of anything more important. And so that's a lot. That's a lot of responsibility to carry around for those direct reports and for those supervisors. With that said, I think some of that's coming from a desire to be helpful, but it's actually not helpful to hold feedback back. If we care about our direct reports and their careers and their success with children, youth, and families, that means we have to actually have the tough conversations. While it seems kind to sort of let some of that stuff go and not want to put one more thing on their plate, it's not kind. If we have taken from them the opportunity to grow and learn themselves. I also think we're modeling. So how we interact with our direct reports maps on to the ways that they interact with the children, youth, and families they serve. We sometimes have to have tough conversations with children, youth, and families, and they're overburdened, and they're stressed, and they're busy, and they're trying to accomplish big change, and that's tough. So figuring out how to have those conversations in a way that honors people, um, whether they're the families we serve or the direct reports um, we're working with, understanding how to have empathy and to care about people and understand the concerns of their stress and their busyness while also holding the tension with the ability to give direct, transparent feedback, I think is fundamental to the work that we do. I'm identifying what you just talked about as the parallel process. Yep. Um, supervisors having to model how to have those courageous conversations, those in quotes, tough conversations, because frontline workers, you have to have those types of conversations with your families. So I um, just wanted to say, I, I noted that, that that was this parallel process that's going on. And I don't know if even as a frontline worker, when I was in the field, I thought of that like that that what my supervisor is modeling for me is what I'm doing to families. So I, I don't want the listeners to miss that. If you are a supervisor listening in or even a frontline worker, um, your decisions to engage in these conversations, there's layers to it, and, and there's multiple points of learning and empowering. Another question on my list, Dr. Leitz, would you mind talking about the critical decision-making skill? And I know that I caught up on some of it during the training I, w I was able to observe today, but... I um, just wanted to hear more about is the critical decision making skill something that supervisors should be identifying within their frontline workers or were you mainly talking about the decision making that's happening on the front lines? You know, child welfare work is an extremely complex. It's contextual. 
it's messy. Um, it should be individualized and based on what that unique child or family um, has experienced and is facing right now. So what that means is child welfare work is not a recipe. You can't say A plus B always equals C and give clear um, sort of a manualized treatment manual that will tell our direct reports about how to do child welfare because each case is unique to, ex to itself um, and people need to be treated um, uh, that way. So critical thinking is an essential skill that we as supervisors help develop within the workforce. It helps them to tolerate the gray and the complexity and it helps them through the dialogue process with their supervisor and sometimes with their peers or with uh, a manager to work out decision making through the process of dialogue and being mindful of the ways that we, um, our own background or um, own experiences um, can sometimes get in the way of us thinking bigger and really understanding holistically something that a child, youth, or family uh, is facing. So I see critical thinking and analytical thinking as an essential skill within child welfare, and it's something that's difficult to teach in the classroom. I think it develops when folks are in the field and then bring the complexity of the cases to their supervisors. They sort of debate, discuss, discuss, consider, stretch, test some things out, and learn to assert some uh, tentative conclusions about what they think is happening, and that's what supports their decision-making. Critical thinking also means that folks make decisions based on what they know in the moment, but that they remain open to changing that opinion as new information in that case develops over time. So it's at this ongoing process of decision-making that is evidence-informed, tentative, um, and happens through the conversation. It's for me one of the reasons why supervision is so important in child welfare because it's how we support good decision making. Did that get sort of what you were where you it were did, going? Jessica? It did. I really appreciate that. And I know that we have talked about vicarious trauma a lot in social work. So this is leading me down the vicarious trauma route because as a frontline worker. I really wasn't able, I shouldn't say able, I didn't have the relationship that I wanted to have, I guess, with my supervisor to talk about the trauma and the secondary trauma that even I was experiencing. I had a great supervisor, though, and we talked about methodology and what I was expected to do, and she was supportive in that. But I guess my question for you is, as a trainer of supervisors, how can a supervisor almost preemptively try to intervene when it comes to vicarious trauma? I think that it's more important to get ahead of it than when it already happens? Yeah, that's a great question. So Caduceus' model talks about how there's three fundamental functions to supervision, that we have an administrative and educational and supportive function, and that it's a bit like a stool with three legs, and that all legs have to be present, otherwise that stool essentially falls over. So the support leg of the stool is really about developing a give-and-take relationship, supervisor to supervisee, grounded in trust. And that trust is what allows us to have courageous conversations and assert our positional authority. And it's that trust that allows us to educate, train, teach, ask questions that fosters analytical, critical thinking. And it's that trust that allows us to recognize that our um, supervisee is struggling or to say, hey, this field is tough sometimes, and when you face those days, I want you to feel comfortable coming to me. It doesn't mean that you are not prepared or that you have somehow failed if you are overwhelmed by some of the difficult things that you're going to experience in this field. I've been there. I'm still there sometimes, and I want to be your ally in this. And I, so I think that's some of what you're getting at. The preemptive aspect of it starts with that relationship, and then it's conversation that says, I anticipate some of this is going to happen, and I want to 
to walk that journey with you um, because it's important and difficult. Absolutely. I also wanted to ask you, Dr. Leitz, I know that you are doing a follow-up evaluation of how frontline workers um, see a difference since this training. So what, um, what in your experience with research, I know we can't predict what's going to happen with this group, um, what have been some key things and changes that were observed since someone went through your training? Yeah, so I've been able to do this in a couple other states, so I do have some sense of what I anticipate to find here in Florida, but of course we'll find out. That's an empirical question, right? Um, so there's a pre-test and post-test, an on anonymous uh, online survey, that the direct reports of the supervisors complete who attended the training. And what happens is um, there's a series of um, items that are measured in that process, and some of them typically stay the same between pre and post tests. For example, the amount of crisis supervision that people report pre to post test stays about the same um, because folks generally are doing a lot of crisis supervision before I come in and I acknowledge it and support it, but it's not a, a significant highlight of the training because I generally have the sense that quite a bit of that is happening already. So we notice not a great degree of change there. The items that I really focus on in the training and that happen to also be the things that we see the most changes in from the direct reports are a handful of things. Uh, first of all, group supervision. Most folks are doing one-on-one -on -one supervision, but in child welfare, we've not had a strong history of doing group supervision. A supervisor bringing their team together uh, periodically. I always suggest at least once a month. If you don't do it once a month, you don't get enough momentum to actually really get good with it. So generally people are doing once or twice a month. They bring their folks together and they just share some of the concerns, cases are stuck on, things that they want creative ideas about, and they come around each other in dialogue. And it ends up being both a very supportive conversation and also give some ideas that they may not have gotten to all on their own. So we see many more people conducting group supervision after participating in the training. The second thing I see some pretty big change around is actually critical thinking, which you asked about. Um, so the ways that people rate the amount of critical thinking they get pre-test compared to once folks have had a couple months to implement this model, they tend to report a higher level of critical thinking. Some of that is because they think of the group supervision and also just the focus on it overall. And then the last thing that I would say is a little bit of where we started, which is that I do recommend that folks push beyond crisis supervision and really think about some scheduled in-depth that's the third item that we see some pretty substantial change on. So I'm excited to see in Florida what happens. Um, and, and hopefully the direct reports will be generous with us. The, the, the survey's anonymous, um, but hopefully they'll fill it out and we'll have the opportunity to see their impressions of what has happened. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to that as well. So Dr. Leitz, I know we're going to wrap up, but I usually give our guests an opportunity to leave their lasting thoughts with our listeners. Do you have anything else you want to say? Any words of encouragement to those frontline workers that are in our field? Well, I guess I'd like to speak to two audiences. I'd first like to speak to the child welfare supervisors who are out there. It's an incredible, generous gift to take on the responsibility of supervision. It often means that you've taken on more responsibility, sometimes with little, if any, additional pay. And there's, that's, that's, a, that's a huge task. It's often a labor of love. It's, it, yeah, sure, it's developing somebody's career and their leadership, um, but it is um, a serious responsibility. It means you're not just responsible for your own practice, but also for the practice of all the people that you oversee. And so I just want to say thank you 
thank you to all the people who are listening who have taken on the important task of supervising direct uh, care workers in child welfare here in Florida. For the folks who are um, new in the field or really experienced, the folks who have committed to ensure the safety, well-being, and permanency of the children here in this state, I can't be more grateful uh, for what they have taken on. I can't think of a more worthy task, and I know it's tough and it's hard. Um, You'll see some stressful things. The schedule is difficult, but it's also meaningful work. It's work that matters. I see direct, whether they're investigators or ongoing workers or they're um, licensing adoptions and foster care, all of that important work, that creates change in the lives of children that then impacts their children and um, generations to come. And so I hope that they never lose sight of the meaning of what they've taken on and that they they probably don't get enough thanks enough so that they know there are some people out here who notice them and are really grateful. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Leitz, for your time, for providing your level of expertise on this topic. Again, I want to say from the Institute, we appreciate all the work that um, you are doing on the front lines in our state. Those that are listening in, we honor your commitment to this work, and we hope the podcast was helpful. To learn more about Dr. Leitz, and strength-based supervision, please come to our website. We're going to be posting her website and some information about what she does. And you can reach us at www.ficw.fsu.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks again, uh, Dr. Leitz. Thanks to Aaron Kuja, our podcast engineer, Mariana Tutwiler, the producer of this series. Until next time, I am Jessica Price, and we are strengthening child protection by providing caseworker support.